This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. No sale. It is no sale. All of you can't Well, Jason, as you know, besides bonds and the yield curve, the next biggest story when we talk about some of the individual stocks that are moving, it's all about Macy's. We talk about the health of the consumer. Uh, this is, of course, as we await sort of Walmart and JCPenney's and some of the other big uh, retailers to come out. So we want to take a look at department stores today. Macy's, of course, coming out with earnings. So joining us to break all this down is Jordan Holman. She's our retail reporter here at Bloomberg News. And Ivan Feinseth, Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer at Tigris financial partners. Jordan, let me start with you. What struck out to me, Macy's reaffirms full year top line, but cuts that full year earnings per share, which means something's happening in the middle of that income statement. What's wrong? So what Macy said today is that this past quarter, they had challenges with excessive markdowns with their products. Um, the international tourism was also down, and they do rely a lot on tourists, especially at this Herald Square market. So those were some of the challenges they faced. They said that they are course correcting, and then they can improve for the latter half of the year. But today, the market was not happy. So Ivan, come on in here, because this seems to have taken people by surprise, especially given, as Taylor sort of rightly pointed out, the relative strength that we feel like we've still been seeing when it comes to consumers. What did you make of it? Well, I mean, I think the biggest issue was that they had an inventory mix problem, that they overbought in women's apparel, and the timing of the market just wasn't right. And I think, though, the top-line revenue was still strong, as the consumer is very strong. Consumer confidence came in last week at a 14-year high, down from an 18-year high. The consumer current situation and outlook is very strong. We are at record employment, or a 50-year low in the unemployment rate. But since more people work today than 50 years ago, we're at a record level of employment. Um, The consumer's bullish. I think we will have a very strong back-to-school and holiday season I think the sell-off in Macy's is an incredible buying opportunity. First of all, right now the home market cap of the company's equity market cap is a little over $5 billion. I would have to say that there are two buildings that they own in New York City, the Macy's building on Herald, in Herald Square and the Bloomingdale's building on 59th Street, are probably worth alone more than half of that right there. Wow. Plus, it's got a 9% dividend yield, and still 90% of all retail takes place in a store. The malls are packed, the stores are packed, and sometimes stores call it right with inventory and sometimes they don't. And mm-hmm. I think that they will readjust. And true with, with uh, technology today, they can better time their inventory and what sells and replenishment. And Macy's has done an incredible job of investing in their omnichannel fulfillment capabilities, in their mobile applications, in really creating a, a better in-store experience and online experience. And, I mean, sometimes people just uh, are not rational in the selling, and I think this is the time, and it is creating an opportunity. Yeah. So, Jordan, let me just play devil's advocate a little bit against something that Ivan just said, which is they do have all this technology uh, at their disposal. Shouldn't they be better at this at, at this point or no? 
Am, I, a, am I making too big of a leap? So that's a good question. I know one of the challenges and criticisms Macy's often gets is that they mark down a lot. And like he was saying, that's just some, that's just, it's part of retail, yeah. you know. Um, but they have, they have been really clear about saying that this year they feel really confident about the fall and how strong that's going to be. Back to school should be strong for them. But I think what's important is that, you know, Macy's reporting, they're the first among its peers. So the question is, what does this mean right. for department stores in general? Well, Ivan, talk to me about that. Was an inventory problem, a promotion discounting issue, a second quarter 2019 issue, or is this going to be a full year and a 2020 issue as well? Well, I think sometimes you just call the inventory right, and sometimes you call the inventory wrong. I mean, consumers chase can change very quickly. However, uh, I do like, I, w- I would call not markdowns or discounting, but their promotional pricing between their couponing, their friends and family promotions, and also manufacturers, especially in apparel, do kick in some of the discounts when they start to mark down merchandise as they get to the end of a season. So they don't fully have to absorb the, the lower price point. They do get either markdown money or rebates back from a lot of the manufacturers. And uh, I think that there's just been such a negative outlook on retail. I also like Nordstrom's. I think mm. Nordstrom's has an incredible customer experience, has invested very well in new technology, and uh, has tried new things as, uh, as far as opening up this massive men's-only store in uh, on 57th Street in New York City, on these smaller 3,000 footprint stores that are like um, you know a curated shopping experience where you can pick out uh, outfits and then they have them made or shipped to you. So I think that the re- retail stores like Macy's and Nordstrom's have it adopted well. I, I am not bullish on JCPenney. I, I think JCPenney becomes, unfortunately, a casualty of retail. Yeah. Because they don't have a differentiated shopping experience, they don't have a value proposition, and most importantly, what Macy's does have, is a, and Nordstrom's as well, is a very successful customer loyalty and membership program. I mean, the Macy's, My, My Macy's membership and the My Macy's credit card, which you get a lot of promotional uh, discounts and value from, and they connect with the customers well. Yeah. You know, as far as emailing and their applications, I think those are positive drivers. All right. We're going to leave it there. Ivan Feinseth, always appreciate your insights. Managing Director and Chief Invest- Investment Officer, excuse me, at Tigers Financial Partners here in New York City. And Jordan Holman, our crack retail reporter here at Bloomberg. She's going to be busy over the next few days tracking all of these earnings. Always grateful to catch up with you as well. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Jason Kelly and Taylor Rakes here on Bloomberg Radio. So, Taylor, I feel like everywhere I turn, if I'm working, if I'm on vacation, I look up and I see a WeWork building. I just got my son's iPhone fixed the other day and his screen fixed. Not cheap, by the way. Uh, went to a WeWork building. There was the uh, vendor doing that. Yep. So they are everywhere. It's a much-anticipated IPO. But let's break it down and understand what it means as a company, but also what it means, as you rightly pointed out, Taylor, in this market. Ellen Hewitt is with us. She is Startups reporter for Bloomberg. She joins us from our 960 studio in San Francisco. All right, Ellen, help us understand sort of the basics here because we look at this, we see a fast-growing company, but it's losing a lot of money. How does that go going forward? Great question. (laughs) I think if you were to ask WeWork, the way they want to frame it is, look, 
We have a great business. It is growing super quickly. We're expanding all over the world. People want our product. There is a huge addressable market available to us, and we've just barely gotten started. And yes, we're losing a lot of money now, uh, but if we really needed to stop bleeding money so quickly, we could just stop expanding so much. Um, They really are trying to link their heavy expenses with their growth investments. So part of the way that they have structured some of the metrics in their in their business is trying to separate out what they consider sort of the uh, contribution margin of their existing businesses as opposed to what they consider growth investments. And, and obviously, if you take out enough expenses, you can find um, a number that is positive and looks good. And so I, I think the the overall story is like yes we're going quickly yes we're losing a lot of money but we have control over it it's not we're not just like flying off the rails here Ellen, you and I spoke Monday night on Bloomberg Technology and we talked a lot about a 47 billion dollar valuation in today's filing did we get an updated valuation number and if so what does it look like we don't have one yet, and, and there are other question marks that remain to be seen. For example, we don't know um, which exchange WeWork is going to pick. We do know they've, they've chosen the ticker um, WE. Uh, but they, you know, we also they filed a placeholder number for their for how much money they hope to raise in the IPO. For example, we have previous reporting that suggests it's about three and a half billion, but they they put in a placeholder one billion. So so I think as the um, S one gets updated, we're going to get some more information about that. And I do think the valuation is going to be something that people are going to be paying very close attention to because for the last two years and even longer, WeWork has been dogged by sort of repetitive criticism that they're overvalued compared to, for example, Regis, which provides a similar um, service of flexible office space, but does not have the sort of high-flying multiple that WeWork commands. It does not have the sort of backers that WeWork does. Um, And WeWork would say that's because their business has something special. It has community. It has this growth energy. The CEO has once described their valuation as based more on spirituality than on any sort of multiple. So right. you can see why people might raise their eyebrows. Uh, and I think people will be looking very closely to see um, what, the, what the public markets say this company is valued at. Well, and a lot of eyebrows have been raised, rightly or wrongly, uh, over time just around Adam Newman, the sort of charismatic founder. You have spent time with him and spent time with a lot of people around him. Help us understand sort of what's at stake here for him professionally and financially because it is not insignificant. Well, the answer to that question is very complicated. Obviously, professionally, this is, you know, he started a couple companies before this, but they weren't very successful. WeWork is by far, um, you know, his major uh, professional achievement, and, and that is by no means to take away from it. I think he has been seen, rightfully so, as a very visionary leader, very yeah. charismatic, as you pointed out, huge personality, someone with a very bold vision. Um, you know, it's, people have reported about how well he's gotten on with Masayoshi Son from SoftBank, for example. I think people consider them cut from the same cloth. These people who dream very big, have these big business ideas, and are very tough um, during their deal-making. Um, and yes, at the same time, the answer of how his financial uh, stake is tied up in WeWork is actually very complicated. And we've discovered today even more complicated than we thought before. So there had been previous reports about how he had had ownership stakes in buildings that WeWork had been leasing. Very complicated. There was actually a whole new financial unit named ARC that was created early this year in part to resolve that conflict of interest. 
Uh, but, you know, today we read about a lot of other stuff. For example, WeWork had been giving loans to uh, Adam Newman since 2013, various things to help him sort of get by in life. And, and then there are he also has a line of credit with banks. Separate from that, he also was given a $42 million, or sorry, 40, $42 million share incentive uh, grant of shares in WeWork in order to get the company to IPO. There's different performance requirements, including getting to IPO, hitting a certain public market cap, that kind of thing. Um, and then that actually turned into a loan. It's, it's all very complicated. Right. The point is, it's he's very tied up in this company. Um, and I think some of the decisions he's made suggest that he has a lot of confidence in the future performance of WeWork as well. For sure. Well, we have a lot of confidence in you, Ellen Hewitt. Great stuff. Uh, Startups reporter, I was looking just at your at your ticker, your bio page today on the Bloomberg, and you are everywhere. This is the biggest story, one of the biggest stories of the day, even amid a big market meltdown. We know we'll be in touch as this one goes along because it's certainly a bellwether of sorts in the world of unicorns. Ellen Hewitt, Startups reporter for Bloomberg, uh, coming to us from our 960 studio in San Francisco. All right, so let's dig into all of those ugly numbers that uh, Bob Moon so nicely laid out for us in terms of what's going on in the market and get a little bit of perspective around it. Uh, to do that, we have Lamar Villery back with us. He is portfolio manager for the Villery Funds, uh, overseeing about $2 billion down there in New Orleans. He's here with us in New York City today where, Lamar, you and I were joking, people are complaining about humidity, and you and I are saying, you don't know humidity. Yeah, it's dry as a bone up here. I don't know what anybody's talking about. <laughs> All right. Well, people are sweating a little bit on the markets today, though. I uh, see what I did there, because they're worried. How worried should people be, given what we've seen uh, in the broader market, these signs of recession? What do you make of this today? I think they should be exactly as worried as they were yesterday or the day before. Um, I don't think, you know, yes, this is a historically been a predictive signal, but I think if people take a step back and say a predictive signal of what? Uh, it's a predictive signal that there may be a recession in the next year or two, which I would have said most people would say is a reasonably likely situation yesterday or the day before, as well as, uh, you know, okay, so if that's right and there is going to be a recession, what does that mean? And historically, that's about a 12-month period. So, uh, yeah, it might signal that there's a recession coming, but we thought there might be one coming yesterday. And when it does come, we don't think it's going to be any worse because there's an inverted yield curve for three seconds during the day. Well, not only is there let's say on average, a 12 to 18 month delay from an inversion to a recession. But we have a story out on the terminal that the equity market actually continues to rise following the next two to three months after the curve inverts. So do you use opportunities like this for a buying opportunity if you think even though we inverted, stocks can still rise in the next coming months? Absolutely. No, I think you know one of the nice things about being an active manager versus a passive manager is we, we can, you know, we don't think of ourselves as market timers, but we can take advantage of opportunities where a passive investor can't. So uh, you know, we look for opportunities like this or or, you know, for example, like like we did in the fourth quarter. Uh, where we really had, you know, sustained down uh, market period uh, to go ahead and find some interesting stocks that we've been wanting to buy, but frankly, didn't check the boxes in terms of valuation. Uh, these can be great opportunities. So we, we enjoy some volatility. It, it works out nicely. When you talk about valuation, sorry, Jason, let me just jump in here. According to our Bloomberg 
intelligence fair value model. S&P fair value is at a 2,900. Right now we're at a 2,945. So do things still look, I guess, no longer overvalued, but fair or undervalued? Yeah. You know, we don't think the market's as frothy. It seems like the market's frothy because it's been going up for so long. Uh, But you're right. When you look at the valuations, it's not cheap. Now, there are cheap stocks and there are opportunities, uh, you know, for for a manager who's really looking for individual unique names. But on the whole, we don't think the market's overvalued. We think the economy looks solid. So might there be a pullback in the next two years? Absolutely. Today being a perfect example. Uh, But we would look at that as an opportunity. And we don't think it's a good idea for anybody to try to, you know, really get cute and pull out of the market based on this. So let's talk about some of those uh, names. On Semiconductor is one that you like. And we've talked a lot over the last couple of days about the chip market more broadly. Why this one? Uh, well, for a number of reasons. Number one, it's cheap. Uh, it's trading at about 10 times next year's earnings. Uh, and, and so that helps, right? Uh, why is it so cheap? Well, one of the reasons it does have some China exposure, so you kind of have to get past that. But we think that pr- that's priced in, and we think there's a, a better than 50-50 shot that that take, is taken care of in the next year or so. So we think the, the risk-reward trade-off is good. More importantly, from a fundamental perspective, we like ON because it's got good exposure to the 5G rollout, mm-hmm. which we think is a, a trend that's going to last for the next five-plus years and a, a lot of spend that they're gonna, uh, that's going to accrue to ON. And number two... You know, if, as you look at uh, cars, your car 20 years ago, you know, basically might have had a digital radio, and that's about it for the electronics. Today, forgetting about, you know, self-driving cars, even if you don't believe in self-driving cars, even if you go out and buy a Suburban, that's still a massively more complex uh, computer system, a lot more semiconductor content, going from about $300 per car to about $1,000 plus per car. And that's a primary market of on. So we just think there's great tailwinds in their end markets. Can I ask a dumb question? Is that allowed on Bloomberg Absolutely Business Week? Absolutely allowed. Uh, it's a general question here. I see throughout your notes, sometimes we talk about PE, sometimes we use enterprise value to EBITDA. What is the appropriate valuation measure? Should we be looking at price to cash flow? What preferred method do you use? Uh you know, probably more often than not, we use price to earnings relative to growth to add yet another one. So, okay, if something's cheap, should it be cheap? A lot of things should be cheap because they're, you know, Macy's probably should be cheap, right? It's, it's, it has a very cloudy outlook. Um, Google, Amazon probably should be expensive. How expensive is a different question. Uh, in terms of picking the metric, unfortunately, it, it depends on the sector. Uh, obviously, you can't, pri- you know, you were talking about WeWork. And whatever you think the valuation of WeWork is, price to earnings doesn't work, right? They're hemorrhaging it's money. It's a negative right? number. Too. Yeah. So then you can't you, have a negative denominator. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I remember when I started uh, in finance years ago and uh, we were trying to figure out how people were valuing these internet stocks. And the only thing I could figure out was price to sales. And I remember my boss said, as you cr- told me I was crazy, that made no sense. And that was the only correlation I could find. And then obviously over time, that's been what people value them because what else can you they don't have positive cash flow they certainly don't have positive earnings uh so it sort of depends um and and you know sometimes you look at an industry and it looks really cheap but it's cheap for a reason all right want to ask you about one more name real quick which is roper rop is the symbol this is an industrial name kind Uh, of kind of sort of but it's more technology It's, it's technology uh 
within industri- industrials. Got it. Okay, um, serving the industrials. Got yeah. It. Okay. So so uh, and that's actually widely misunderstood. I think Jim Cramer uh, the other day said they were you know the best metal bender around, um, which uh, you know they don't bend metal. They're, they're yeah. buying you know predominantly recurring revenue SaaS type businesses uh, that are that are sort of premium assets that have huge cash flow, twenty four percent cash flow margins. Uh, so massively profitable and, and quality businesses. So uh, that's you know that's one that's not cheap by any stretch, uh, but extremely high quality business. All right, great stuff. Always good to have you visit us. Lamar Villery is portfolio manager for the Villery Funds, uh, looking after about two billion dollars down in New Orleans. Here with us in New York City today. What doesn't kill you makes you I love that lead-in song, and never has it been more true, maybe, than in the case of Facebook, which gets to pay, has to pay $5 billion to the FTC, but maybe it is a gets-to-pay situation. Sarah Fryer is tech reporter for Bloomberg. Pretty provocative piece, I dare say, in this week's edition of Bloomberg Business Week. She's in our 960 studio in San Francisco. Joel Weber, the editor of the magazine, here with us in New York City. So, Sarah, give us the basic premise here. Facebook making um, lemonade out of lemons? You just have to take a step back and look at it logically. What is the most valuable component of Facebook's business? Well, it's the data that they collect from all of the users who use its products and use it for their advertising business, which is on track to bring in $70 billion in revenue this year. And the FTC, the regulator, is coming to them and telling them, you can't share your most valuable asset with any other companies because we said so. And so Facebook, because the FTC's ruling is so um, broad and also vague, they can kind of decide how to apply it. And they can say that they don't want to share their data in in ways that could be anti-competitive and say that that was really because the FTC told them that privacy is the utmost important thing. So we have to keep a lookout for how this choice may make Facebook even stronger from an anti-competitive standpoint. Sarah, how did they get away with only paying $5 billion? Where does that number come from? The number comes from months of negotiation with the FTC behind closed doors. And furthermore, after the $5 billion, every other thing that Facebook does, uh, with the FTC looking into it, they will have another round of negotiation because there's no specific defined uh, penalty that they have the way they do under GDPR or some of the other, some of the other privacy rules. Sarah, here's the most important question of this uh, little discussion. What did you? How did you feel about the art for the story, which is Mark Zuckerberg, no shirt, flexing, and maybe not his muscles? Can't unsee. Oh my goodness, that has that you know that has really uh, ginned up a lot of reaction on Twitter today. Just that art with the piece, but I, I think you know when people read it, they say. You know, I didn't, I hadn't thought about it this way because everyone's focused on punishing Facebook, punishing Facebook. But you have to stop and think: Are we are we punishing Facebook as it exists today, or the Facebook of years ago? Um, Facebook used to want to share its data; it used to need that in order to grow stronger. Now, not sharing data is only going to help it. 
And Sarah, one of the most important elements of your piece, I think, is synthesizing this with the decision to really bring Instagram and WhatsApp sort of into the tent, as it were, post their founders leaving. This is a different sort of company. It, it really is. And, and when you listen to Zuckerberg talk about how he needs to integrate Instagram, WhatsApp, and Messenger behind the scenes in order to provide encryption to those services. Well, is it really necessary to integrate them in order to provide encryption? Integrating them is going to make it much more difficult to untangle them if you ever need to, if lawmakers ever come and say this company needs to be broken up or the data can't be shared between these properties. Facebook will say, well, they are really all the same thing. And, and so that is a really critical result of, of that move. Speaking of which, FTC is not the only people continuing to talk to Facebook. What, what else is going on uh, in D.C.? F- Facebook is uh, you know, one, one of a few companies that's in D.C.'s ire. Absolutely. I mean, we have the DOJ also looking into to companies. Um, but in terms of Facebook, I actually think the bigger issue is is international. The Irish Data Commissioner is probing several items, including uh, my scoop yesterday that Facebook has been paying contractors to, to, to transcribe audio from users on Messenger. Uh, there are actual humans transcribing their audio to check the AI. So you have the Irish Data Commissioner looking into that. The German And to be clear, uh, Facebook has said that they've stopped doing that. But they have stopped doing that. But nevertheless, they have they done it. They were doing it, yeah. And, and you have the German regulator looking at Facebook and, and thinking, well, is, is the fact that people can't bring their data elsewhere and the fact that you know, they, they really have this monopoly on this, this large network, is that making it harder for other companies to come up and sort of thinking of data as a resource the way you think of, of you know, something else? Uh, when, and when you, Sarah, when you think about the, the, in the U.S., the two fronts – you know, the first time really that companies have ever had to take on FTC and DOJ at the same time. Which one does Facebook fear more, FTC or DOJ? 30 seconds, sir. The FTC is definitely more focused on Facebook, but do they fear them? I'm not so sure. I mean, they definitely got off easy in the last round. So Starting to look like a weight bench. We just get here. Yeah. We, we go stronger when we get on this thing. There you go. Absolutely. All right. Sarah Fryer, tech reporter for Bloomberg. She joined us from our 960 studio in San Francisco. Her story, Facebook, only getting stronger under federal scrutiny so far. And Joel Weber, the editor of Business Week, here with us. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close on a very busy day of trading, to say the least. Trying to make sense of it all here at Bloomberg Business Week. And so we turn to one of our pals, Ryan Dietrich. He is senior market strategist at LPL Financial. Looking after $659 billion, that firm is. He joins us on the phone from Charlotte, North Carolina. All right, Ryan, I'm going to take a deep breath and just ask the question, what's going on out there? 
Well, Jason, first off, thanks for having me back. But, boy, it's an interesting day, isn't it? You know, I mean, I want to take a step back here. I was on with you guys last month, and we said, hey, just had a big rally. Let's be leery of the month of August. The last 10 years, the month of August is the worst month of the year. We always have these weird events happen in August for whatever reason, whether it be 1990, Iraq invades Kuwait, 97, the Asian contagion, 98, long-term capital management, you know, 2011, U.S. debt downgrade, 2015, China surprised evaluation. You get the drift. All of a sudden, this year, what's happened? Well, you know, the China stuff has flared up, the inverted yield curve. And honestly, after almost a 30% bounce from the lows of Christmas Eve, a 20%, uh, you know, the best start for stocks since 1997, we said, hey, we could have a rocky August. And my, oh, my, it's sure happening, isn't it? Ryan, as we take a look and you see equities selling off 3% across the board, what are the correlations that you look at to gauge sentiment? So on one hand, you have a VIX, but it's only 22. We're not printing a 30 or a 35. You go over to yen, you're seeing a 105 print that's drifted stronger from a 106 handle yesterday. What are the key correlations that you look at? Well, that's right. I mean, the VIX, like you said, it's not having that spike up to the 40 level that we've seen at previous major lows. But, you know, I mean, I guess we like to see what are people doing with the real money, right? Earlier this week, or I guess just yesterday, the Bank of America Merrill Lynch survey came out. We've seen that, that, I mean, that looks at surveys of $650 billion of fund managers are doing record number of hedges. I mean, think about that. So people are hedging more than they've ever hedged before. And you look at just flows. I mean, we've continued all year. We've seen flows out of equities and into bonds, and we're seeing some really high numbers there. The AAII Senate poll, another favorite of ours, the highest number of bears since December of 2018 and February of 2016. Not the two worst times to be a contrarian. So there's, a, there's definitely a mixed bag, but no question after this, really, especially after today, you know, the sentiment is definitely getting very sour. And, and the it's really neat about yields, right? At the start of the year, everybody thought the yields were going to go higher. Clearly, that has not been the case. Now we've got $15 trillion negative yielding debt around the globe. Continued kind of thought that, hey, now everyone's on the other side of that boat, other side of that trade, thinking yields are just going to continue to go lower. The intercontrarian in me really thinks, wow, it wouldn't be something if yields, especially today, the day the yield 210 yield curve inverts, that maybe we can finally uh, start to see yields form some type of a low. We do think that's quite possible. All right, so what do you do here, Ryan? I mean, if you're an everyday investor, you're looking at it, you don't have the technical acumen uh, that you have, you don't have the experience that you have, it's hard to not get at least a little rattled by a move uh, this big. So what's your advice? Well, you're right, Jason. I guess don't panic. You know, as of this second, S&P still up 13.5% for the year. Yeah, we were up 20% not too long ago. But, you know, the, the yield curve, this is what everyone's going to be talking about, right? The inverted yield curve, the 210. I mean, just be aware. I want listeners to be aware. We looked at the last five cycles, the last five times that yield curve inverted ahead of a recession. It took 21 months on average before a recession started. Looking at stocks, stocks were up 22% on average at the peak after the yield curve inversion. In the late 1990s, S&P gained almost 40% from after the inversion until the ultimate peak. So, yes, an inverted yield curve is a concern. It shows you're late in the cycle, but it is by no means a reason to just sell everything and hide under your bed and you know, go to cash. We still think, when you look at the economy, U.S. consumers are still strong. I mean, that's, I understand the global economy is definitely slowing. 
U.S. economy is still in pretty good. I'm sorry, U.S. consumers still in pretty good shape. And last I checked, they make up about 70% of GDP. So we just don't see a recession here in the United States. Rockiness happens, pullbacks happen, and that's where we are right now. But there's still a reason to think at the end of the year, uh, 3,000 is our fair value target. We think S&P definitely can be up around that by the end of the year. So talk to me about that. If 3,000 is fair value and right now we have a 2848, what sector is the least valued or the most undervalued at which you'd be a buyer? Right. Well, we really like value here. I'm fully aware of value relative to growth has done very poorly, specifically probably because the yields have gone lower. It's really hurt financials. But banks had some really good earnings recently. And we think, you know, again, looking at that Bank of America sentiment poll that I just mentioned, you know, they're looking at some of the lowest uh, lowest level of bulls in value we've seen in about a decade. And that makes sense. So from a contrarian point of view, value really could uh, offer some opportunity here. At the same time, you know, at LPL Research, we've been saying for a couple months now, we could have maybe a 10% correction during this third quarter, which is usually the worst quarter of the year. We're actively looking at the cyclical names, you know, technology, financials, industrials. We don't think this bull market's over, and we're going to be looking on a little bit more weakness here to potentially add to those cyclicals and value are two plays the rest of this year that we're a little bit overweight. And so when you look at tweets about the Fed, you look at Hong Kong protests, you look at back and forth over China trade. Are there any of those that sort of pop to the top of your list in terms of things to watch, especially closely, Ryan? Yeah, I mean, all those are important. Let's not forget Argentina losing 38% of their stock market in one day. I mean, my goodness, who, who would have thought that could ever happen? So, you know, that that kind of collage, all those. I mean, just today, you know, 17-year lows in produ- industrial production for China, you know, 27-year lows in GDP. We've got the, the potential recession in Germany taking place. Really, the big worry that keeps, up, keeps us up at night is just that global slowdown. You know, the, but the thing you remember the rest of the globe has never pulled the United States into a recession. Normally, it's the United States is in a recession, pulls the rest of the globe, and we're still not seeing that yet. But right. clearly, a potential policy mistake out of the Fed and a global slowdown, hey, those are the two things everyone's talking about, and those are the two things we are most worried about. Yeah. All right. Well, some great thoughts. Thank you so much, as always. Ryan Dietrich, Senior Market Strategist for LPL Financial. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.